Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley. This week, Under the Radar, we're drilling into a new dental plan for Massachusetts and chewing over a different kind of grocery store in Codman Square. Plus, will the poultry industry have egg on its face after moves to crush a 2016 ballot initiative? Later in the show, we remember a time when Congress supported legislation to ease the path for immigrants. And with that as context, we take a look at the journey of immigrants to Boston, who are now the new Bostonians. But first, joining me in the studio, Mike Dehan, WGBH News State House reporter. Hi, Mike. Hey, Kelly. David Scharfenberg, Boston Globe politics reporter. Hello, David. Hello there. And Lauren Dzinski, Politico's Massachusetts reporter and author of the Massachusetts Political Playbook. Welcome. Thank Lauren. you so much. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it's a mouthful, but we got it. It's a new title for you. Thanks, um, Let's kick it right off, uh, Mike, with your story about this dental plan that's been proposed. Um, and it would essentially create another category, one that could uh, essentially treat people who don't have to have all of the bells and whistles that a full-on dental uh, examination may bring. People who have cavities, people who have other kinds of smaller issues. Right. And it could be more cost-effective. Right, yeah. yeah. It's not a dental plan as in what you get from Delta and uh, you know, keep in your back pocket. It's a, a category of certification that the state would create and certify for. So right now, um, if you think back you know, 20 years ago or so when the uh, dental hygienists were a new class, it would be like that. I think the equivalent people have been saying is that this would be almost like a registered nurse uh, for the uh, dental practice, meaning that they can do uh, you know, examinations, cavity fillings, pull teeth, things like that, that um, do require a certain amount of expertise and education. There would be another 18 months of, of schooling involved in this, basically a master's uh, class as opposed to a, an MD, you know, a DDS dentist, I should say. Uh, yeah, and you're right about the cost effectiveness here. This would be people who wouldn't be in school quite as long, who wouldn't have you know the salaries that a full DDS dentist would have. And there's um, plenty of advocates who say that is the way to expand uh, access to dental care. In, the, you know, in rural parts of the state or in the inner city, um, there's just not as much uh, dental care available as there should be, as the argument goes. Uh, so there's a bill in front of the legislature right now um, in, the, in the in committee level at the moment that will uh, create this certification, and we'll see how it goes. Well, I have to say, uh, you know, I, I just, uh, just a bit of bias about this because, uh, first of all, I was ob- I've observed plans like this in other states. I'm thinking of Alaska specifically. Much has been written about their plan. A um, lot of rural areas, a lot of low-income communities there. And having this uh, specific classification, it's more like a dental practitioner yeah. slash nurse practitioner kind of thing has just made a world of difference. And the dental community pushed back on it initially. But, wow, they people have really gotten a lot of care as a result of this. And, by the way, we should say, I don't know what this bill says, but let me just make clear that if uh, a this person in this category were to see somebody with some bigger problems, they don't attempt to treat them. They refer them 
to dentists. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, the dentist argument here is that we aren't Alaska. We aren't Minnesota, which was one of the first states, if not the first state, that passed a bill like this, a law like this that created this classification. Uh, dentists that I talk to um, say that there is plenty of access to dental care. People just need to come into traditional dental practices and, and, and do it and sign up. Um, he said that 95 percent of people under Medicaid, under Mass Health, uh, for dental coverage are within a mile or two of a practicing dentist, something like that. Now we get into the, the Berkshires. It's um, Representative Smitty Pignatelli uh, is the sponsor of this bill. He has probably one of the most rural districts, and he says that, no, you can't get to a dentist. You're miles and miles away. That's why they need this intermediary uh, between a hygienist and a dentist where they can have more of them for less money and really get these things done. But the dentists say that for the most part, we have more than enough service already. Well, um, David Scharfenberg, I'm just going to point to a woman in uh, Mike's piece who says she works with the state's poorest populations, and she says she's completely overburdened, which doesn't sound unreasonable. So maybe somebody could get to a dentist within five miles, but getting in is something else to see them. I mean, this strikes me a little bit of the kind of classic thing we hear in Massachusetts politics all the time, which is, you know, the greater Boston area and then the non-greater Boston area, and you mm-hmm. might have very different experiences uh, in those two places. Um, you know, it also just, for me, it's interesting in that it seems to be part of this kind of larger trend toward kind of halfway solutions. And we've got these kind of CVS minute clinics that have popped up and, you know, with kind of exploding healthcare costs, you know, trying to find alternatives. It's just kind of interesting to see it all uh, unfold. Um, so we'll see how strong the dental lobby is, I suppose, out, <laughs> right. out of well, all this. Like many battles on Beacon Hill, there are lobbyists on both sides. There's money on both sides to get this across. Uh, Senator uh, Chandler from Worcester has been the champion of, of lots of oral health bills, and this one particularly for years and years. And it seems like it's closer to the finish line than it's been uh, ever before. But, you know, how things can get derailed up there. Well, I will just say this, Lauren. Again, this is personal experience, anecdotal, and all scientists are screaming, saying that doesn't prove anything, which is true. (laughs) But just to say that, I have dental insurance. Mm -hmm. I know how much I pay out of pocket on top of that. So I'm just imagining on the other end of the spectrum when you have no insurance, you don't get seen. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. I think access is key, especially, you know, when we're talking about, you know, more rural areas. And I think another facet of this, too, is uh, for dentists or someone who would like to become a dentist, uh, the cost of education. You know, if you can go to an 18-month-long program versus, you know, I don't know how many years, you know, official dental school takes, but, you know, Education is not cheap by any means, and so this is another uh, means for access and more opportunity for healthcare providers, not just people who would receive that health, you know, care as well. So, so Mike, is this a good shot of passing? It could be. Like I said, it's come mm-hmm. up several times before in the past, and um, you know, the lobbies on either side are going to fight till the last breath, probably. But uh, it's got a better chance now than it has, so I'll be keeping an eye on it. Okay. Um, Lauren, I'm really interested in, in this story about Daily Table, the Daily Table, which is in Dorchester, which I'm going to l- allow you to explain what it is. But I have to say, I was driving the other day and I wondered, I just thought to myself, I wonder how that's doing. Well, pretty well. It's doing extremely <laughs> yeah. well. So Daily Table is a low-cost uh, grocery store. It's basically created by the uh, co-founder of Trader Joe's, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, it it is It essentially uh, seeks to provide... Uh, groceries at a lower cost for, uh, in areas that are technically considered food deserts uh, in in the sense that um, these are locations that don't necessarily have, you know, uh, 
cheap or easy access to vegetables or, you know, fresh produce or, um, you know, things that, you know, people need. You can't necessarily rely on McDonald's for every single meal. Um, and so Daily Table, which came into Codman Square earlier this year, um, has achieved wild success. Uh, they, uh, they're actually planning on opening a second location somewhere in the city. But basically the whole um, X factor in these types of business models is that they primarily rely on donations. And the Daily Table has been able to reach the sweet spot of 50% donations from companies and then using, you know, their funds to also purchase, you know, the other 50% of the groceries that are needed. Um, and I, I actually I live in Dorchester. I go to Daily Table fairly frequently. I actually I had soup last night that was from Daily Table. Mm. Chicken, or it was it was uh, tomato soup. It was delicious. Um, the food is actually fantastic because they um, have prepared foods as yeah, well. Yeah, they do prepared yeah. food mm-hmm. as well as um, as well as you know frozen food. You, you can get fish and eggs, and it changes up a little bit because it's donation based. But basically the the you know x factor in all of this is that it it's based on donation it's based on you know the communities reaching out and you know these you know corporate organizations you know giving products um to daily table and the response has been extremely extremely positive um so it's not a profitable business model um the uh the owner of the daily table is quoted in uh, the Dorchester reporter this week basically saying that you know, these business models, you know, the whole goal is to break even. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're trending to that, but haven't reached that yet. But they've basically uh, come the furthest uh, than any other, you know, company that has ever tried to do this before. So they're they're on a good track. This is very much something that I think other parts, uh, you know, other businesses in other parts of the country are looking at as a model um, and, the food is really, really good. <laughs> I'm just very impressed, um, uh, David Scharfenberg, by Doug Rauch, I believe is how he mm-hmm. pronounces it, because I remember him talking about this when he went over um, to Harvard's uh, Kennedy School and was just trying to think about, you know, how to uh, how to how to deal with un- wasted food, right? not food that was. Good, but just would thrown away. Wasted. Would be wa- right. would be wasted, and you know, I remember he's talking about it, and people are like, "Okay, yeah, right, that's going to work." And he's been working on that, and it, it happened, and it's doing well. So this is very impressive to me, I have to say. Yeah, the, you know? <laughs> it's my old neighborhood too, so I've got yeah. a personal interest in, in it. Uh, grew up a couple blocks from there. I mean, it definitely took a stick-to-itiveness to make it happen. Yeah, he's been talking about this for a long time, and it's a great idea, and I think would. Um, I'll be very curious to watch sort of the execution over time and, uh, you know, the marketing and the thing. I don't, I don't know if things have changed or but I, last time I drove by there, it's kind of hard to tell it's even there. I mean, it's a little, it's yeah. a little, it's a little hidden. Hmm. Um, so I'll be, you know, curious to see how much attention he can build, what the second location is like and, um, uh, Godspeed to him. It's a great idea. I would like to see, um, this is just me putting stuff together in my own little fantasy world, uh, Mike Deanne, <laughs> because I love the Boston Public Market. Love, love, love it. Mm. Oh, it's and fantastic. It's just fantastic. Yes. So some of those people maybe could, you know, as they see some of the vegetables going in a way that wouldn't be attractive to people coming in, right. maybe they could donate. That'd be good. I, th- I think you're right. Yeah. What I'm curious to see is if they can really get a sustainable ecosystem of that food going, get these processes, get these routine mm. things. I mean, I could definitely see... Uh, a scenario where you know, there aren't any really fresh greens there, and I'm not sure 
how far uh, Daily Table is willing to go on prices and on getting into their own pockets. It would be a shame if you know funding or resources or just supply lines failed in such a way. And I think you're you're right that you know partnerships like with the public market could could be go a long way. And again, a chance people a chance to take because you got everything in there. You got cheese. You got all these other things that you know people get a taste of. And it's sort of like if you ever do any kind of bargain shopping, which I do, people get accustomed to knowing that. Every time I go, maybe the thing that I, one thing I want may not may not be there, but there may be other things mm-hmm. that I could try. Mm-hmm. So be a way to sort of grow interest in different kinds of vegetables, as I see it as well. So we'll see because uh, you know the winter time is really going to be tough, um, and yeah. I think that this he'll be this will be his first winter with the daily table being open. But I wish them very good luck because I think it's great. Now, one of the things that could upend uh, the purchasing power of uh, the Daily Table and in many other grocery stores are eggs. <laughs> David Scharfenberg, the eggs, even I, who is not a good grocery shopper, those prices are through the roof. You have to really think about, do I want this, these eggs these days? Um, and in fact, I had somebody approach me in Whole Foods doing a survey asking how far up the price would it go before I would stop buying them? Because, really? yes, as they were climbing up, because there are many issues why our egg prices are up. But anyway, our point here is that there is a 2016 Massachusetts ballot initiative that would uh, require Massachusetts farms and businesses to only sell eggs from cage-free hens. Uh, David, I think that's a great idea, but I can, from my end, it looks like the prices will definitely go up if that goes through. I think that's going to be the central argument of the... the uh the egg industrial complex here. I mean, they're going to they're going to they're going to say um, they're going to try to frame this as kind of an um, economic justice issue, even that really this would be kind of a tax on the on the poor. They're they're, they're planning to do an analysis of uh, uh, low income people in particular and how this would impact them. I think this is just a fun kind of fascinating case study uh, in a liberal state like Massachusetts. I mean, uh, the egg industry got their clock cleaned in California around a similar ballot initiative. And um, they said this week to my uh, colleague, Josh Miller, reporter at The Globe, that they're going to try to come up with some sort of different take. They spent 10 million bucks in California and and, and they still lost big. And so they're going to have to come up with some sort of creative way to make the argument here. Is there a reason? Are there key reasons why they lost in California? I think, you know, I think it's just the political climate in the state. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a it's a liberal left leaning state, and you say, yeah, of course, chicken should be cage free, and and uh, and that's going to be a tough argument for them to beat. Um, I think the whole 2016 ballot cycle is going to be interesting. I mean, the, just the whole kind of there's going to be a lot yeah. of economic populism issues there. There's a there's a millionaire's tax that looks like it's going to be on the ballot there. Uh, there's going to be potentially another kind of gambling measure uh, on the ballot there. Spare um, me, please. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's and just marijuana. There's a marijuana one, right? There's two marijuana. Yeah, ones. that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So it's mm-hmm. gonna be it's gonna be kind of fascinating. I think there's gonna be a lot of money sloshing around and um, a lot of kind of hot button liberal issues, and this is this is one of them. But this is a definite grocery pocketbook issue, Lauren. So um, I, I, that you know sometimes. When it comes down to it, self-interest rules. Absolutely. <laughs> you I know. mean, yeah, it's 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 the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that with something like that, you know, looking at the previous ballot question, you know, something like tank the gas tax. Mm. In a state like Massachusetts, you know, roads and bridges, we all use them. We all drive on them. And yet, you know. A lot. If, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it's not like I just use it infrequently. But 
I'm I'm so curious. I I I'm so eager to see what the ads are going to look like. Like, will there be will there be puns about eggs? Is it going to be excellent? <laughs> you know, it's, the 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 headline potential also. You know, from from a reporter's perspective, is mm. just remarkable. Well, I think the ads, um, uh, if I may say, Mike D, and this is a bad one coming right out of my head right now, is going to be you. See that case right there? How much did you pay? You want to buy a carton of eggs or this winter coat? That's about what you'll be paying if you you pass. There are going to be very different issues uh, on either side of this. It's almost as if they're going to be talking about different things because the the four side is going to be showing you pictures of uh, abused chickens. Um, And you're not really going to think of eggs. It's not going to be about eggs so much. It's going to be about the hens. Mm -hmm. Whereas the other side is going to be about the the eggs as a product, which in a lot of people's minds are completely unless you What came first? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, unless unless you've uh, had some experience in a hen house or in a more rural area where you kind of see that, you may not even think that what end, ends up in the carton of egg substitute has anything to do, you know, with uh, real eggs. Well, let me put this on the table to you all, though, because uh, with, there are a lot of stories of people raising their own chickens now in town, which yes. now I really don't want to be living next to somebody with a chicken. But I'm just saying people are doing that um, as a way to get around cage freak, frankly, and also... I presume to have a cheaper egg. Yeah, I you know. I imagine pipeline. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and if and this is of course a tradition people have had uh, for a long time, not necessarily in the city, yeah. but plenty of people have raised their chickens. Um, and, and I think most small operations like that would be considered cage free. We're really only talking about the large scale. Uh, production facilities that really, you know, cage the, the hens in, in a certain way. And it has to do with the, you know, the size of the actual cage, the diameter, how much they can move, yeah. right, range yeah. of motion, things like that. Um, but back to the advertising quickly, I think we're, we're, we saw a very successful uh, move by when the bottle bill was up mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. last year and with the economic issue of, you know, it's not – their argument was that the recycling is – argument isn't – it's 20, 25 years old and we have better recycling now. And also it's going to be five cents more on this, that, and that. So that pocketbook issue was very effective and uh, those are the ads they aired to great success. They also play into the you know the election season too and kind of who's yeah. – uh, I should say that the millionaire's tax I mentioned would actually be two years later mm-hmm. back in 2018. And one of the interesting things there is, you know – Forcing a potential, you know, Governor Baker up for reelect to take a position on on an issue like yeah. that, um, and we'll in 2016, I'm sure to a lesser degree, we'll we'll, we'll see every every politician asked about uh, where they are on chickens. Yeah, well, I will say this: this is also the state that everybody thought that the um, right to die legislation, because of the left leaning, would definitely go through, and I, and we saw that flip yeah. in the middle. Mm-hmm. It started off strong in favor, and then you know, went down. So you just really can never tell in Massachusetts. It's like the weather. (laughs) (laughs) So let's turn to politics because, um, you know, that's just like the weather in Massachusetts as well. Oh, before we do that, let me just uh, let our listeners know, if you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley, and here with me is WGBH News' Mike Dehan, David Scharfenberg of the Boston Globe, and Lauren Dzinski from Politico's Massachusetts Playbook, where she is a reporter. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Callie. Okay. Uh, uh, David, let's start with uh, Elizabeth Warren and the Black Lives Matter speech. Um, And we should preface this by saying, I didn't know she was about to make a big speech about Black Lives Matter. Did you? <laughs> I got called in last minute to cover this thing um, uh, last week. You know, it's interesting. This speech has gotten some play here, but it's made some national ripples. Um, this was, you know, some saying this is kind of the speech that the 
Black Lives Matter uh, movement was waiting for. Uh, she came out you know, very strongly uh, in support of the movement. She very explicitly tied it to the civil rights movement of the 60s. Um, and, you know, she didn't really mince words. I mean, she talked about uh, police brutality. She said at one point, quote, sickening videos of unarmed black Americans cut down by bullets, choked to death while gasping for air. She spoke kind of bracingly of these things. Um, and she really tied uh, issues of race to her kind of signature issue of uh, economic inequality um, in a big way. Um, it's just interesting. I mean, th- this movement has uh, been able to insinuate itself into the presidential race in a pretty effective way. Um, I think the question around this, like Occupy Wall Street, like all these movements is, you know, how long will it last? What will its legs be? Um, this certainly kept it in the headlines for a while longer. Um, and, uh, you know, let's face it, Elizabeth Warren is one of the most prominent politicians in the country. And to get a kind of the a full embrace of the movement from someone who is so prominent was just a uh, an interesting, interesting happening. I just want to point out one thing that she said, because you you, you mentioned that she tied economic uh, justice, to, which is one of her central themes, um, to this. And she said economic justice has never been sufficient to ensure racial justice. Owning a home won't stop someone from burning a cross on the front lawn. Admission to school won't prevent a beating on the sidewalk outside. So the reason I raised that is that I thought not only was it interesting in a linkage, but this is exactly the criticism that Bernie Sanders has gotten because he's very much focused on economic justice and Black Lives Matter protesters have said, hello, hello, is there no connection? Do you not see how this is working? And and he then said, yes, of course, and, you know, came around. Uh, but I just thought it was – I didn't know if that was a – she was making a little statement about Bernie there. Well, I didn't he, know he what actually, she was doing. He actually, I mean, yeah, in <laughs> you part know. because he was forced, came out yeah. with a very sort of detailed kind of racial justice uh, platform afterward. Uh, and that's, you know, a sign of uh, how impactful this movement has been on the Democratic side. Uh, you, do, you do not hear the Republican candidates talking about this much at all. Um, you know, Democrats have uh, structural advantages in presidential races these days. It's going to be hard to beat whoever the Democratic nominee is. And if they go into office um, uh, with this as a real central plank um, and with lots of talk in Washington, bipartisan talk of criminal justice reform, for instance, uh, I think we could see some interesting movement uh, in ways that we have not in some time. Uh, Lauren, I have to say, from, since you're watching the political playbook here from Massachusetts, uh, this is the kind of statement that can be made by someone who is not running for president. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Now, Elizabeth Warren is still not running for president. <laughs> Nothing has changed in that front. Um, but it, it is pretty interesting because she, you know, she took such a firm and hard stance that so many people were looking for. Um, the the Warren press office actually sent out an embargoed version of the copy a couple hours before the speech was actually made. Um, and I had a friend from D.C., Wes Lowry, mm-hmm. sent me a text message and was like, hey, I want you to be like, are you aware of the fact that this speech is being made? Are, are people covering this? And, you know, he was, you know, the person from the Post that, you know, his story had the headline saying this is the speech at Black Lives Matter. Mm-hmm. Protesters, you know, are looking for. And I think that, you know, speeches like this, stances like this are, you know, what is so crucial about moving the needle with issues like this. You know, you, you have the protests, but then you have uh, you have moments where the issue transcends you know, speeches in the street. It becomes a, you know, formal institutionalized speech by someone like Elizabeth Warren. And everyone is paying, paying attention to what she's doing. You know, this did make national headlines. You know, this this is a a central issue in, you know, this, this presidential race. Um, again, I'm curious to see how this will, 
you know, turn out going forward? How will this continue to move the needle? Will this really move the needle? Um, you know, is, is Elizabeth Warren going to be proposing specific legislation to correct some of the issues that she just identified in this speech? Mm. Let's see that. Oh, no, that's this is true. And by the way, to David's point about the not so much chatter about it uh, on the Republican side, there has been some interaction by uh, Black Lives Move movement protesters. Remember, this is very decentralized movement. So there are different groups in various cities doing different things, Mike. One of them, by the way, just came out with something called Campaign Zero, which is 30 very specific initiatives to combat some of the the, the drama that we have seen and the violence that we've been seeing with regard to police brutality. But there's lots of other things that are, that are attendant to that. And so, uh, to Lauren's point, there is an opportunity for many um, politicians to even pick one or two of those points out outside of even police brutality, because there's a number of things listed on that on that list that um, they want people to pay attention to. But I should mention that I have heard them, one group at least, say they're going to the GOP convention. So it's not going to be, um, I think no one will be able to ignore it. I guess that's my point. Yeah, there are, uh, yeah. A, there are a few bills uh, in the legislature right now. Actually, I covered a, a bill from a rep. Evando Carvalho that would uh, require a special prosecutor be named in cases of uh, police-involved shootings, which would kind of take power away from the local DA and put it into the hands of a state uh, investigative authority. And this was an attempt to kind of, you know, quell whatever kind of conflict might pop up within, you know, community versus police and to uh, make sure, you know, put rules in place uh, ahead of time to hopefully improve relations between the communities and the and the police, and I believe that's probably I think that's one of the Black Lives Matters uh, lists of, mm-hmm. of things that they want. And these things can pop up federally; they can pop up at the state level, or it could just be a very local, uh, you know, police chief thinking about these types of things. And I think it's really going to take all of those different levels of authority to uh, move the needle culturally on these types of things. I think that's right, too. But certainly uh, a speech by Elizabeth Warren with as much power that she has right now by not running for president, (laughs) ironically, um, is something significant. And I'm sure we'll hear more of her speech quoted as time goes on. Um, I wanted to turn to a piece that the Bay State Banner reported about um, the gang label, and it's something that the New York Times has also picked up. Um, And in a more very, very detailed piece, the Bay State Banner piece uh, focused on this young man, Alex Ponte Capilon, who's now 24, who uh, is a student at Brighton High School and said the police officers uh, identified him as a gang member. He is not a gang member, he says. and has lots of other evidence to the contrary. But once you get on the list or once you have something that looks like you are, uh, in his case, uh, there was a picture of him with some kids and they said, oh, well, you must, therefore, this must be a gang. He said, no, these were just people from my neighborhood. But this is very interesting. And the New York Times did, as I said, a a huge piece about this because um, there are several court cases now where a gang label uh, makes a difference in how someone is, may go to jail or may you know, whatever the law may be uh, against them, but it enhances the punishment if you if you have a gang enhancement situation. And I'm curious because that's one of the things that Boston has said, um, Lauren here, the Boston uh, police chief, has been proud of is to say that we really are working hard. We're, you know, at the level of community policing. We know, um, you know, who the gang folks are. What do you think about that? And in, in, after reading this, this piece and and listening to people say, maybe not so much. I think that it shows the ripe environment for criminal justice reform. Like, clearly, 
at multiple level levels, be it in the city, state, or federally, you know, people really are looking at how, you know, we are policing and, you know, what specific things are being done. And I think, you know, a couple decades ago, if if a kid was coming forward saying, hey, I'm not in a gang, there wouldn't necessarily be this type of response, be it from the media or, or you know, in any sort of structures of power. Um, People people recognize that there are issues, there are significant issues, and you know changes need to be made. Um, specifically, how the city and state move forward in in this circumstance, I'm not sure. Um, but this things are happening. What do you think? So, Mike, you know, you mentioned these the, the some of the legislation that's moving through the the um, through the the legislature. Are, is there any attention paid to this as an issue specifically related to gang? Labeling or gang, um, perhaps enhancement, which is a a law in California. This is why we're that people I, are dealing with it now. I'm not aware of any uh, state classification mm-hmm. of gang levels. I, I think that that would be heavily debated if if it were. It's interesting when you know, you bring up community policing, and this is what we you know have kind of seen as a positive thing. These the gang units, the youth units. Uh, you know, do think that they know the operators and the impact players. And, you know, we hear terms like that. And a lot of that, you know, there are individuals and there are groups that are kind of centered around those individuals. And then there are, you know, gangs and there's everything in between. Um, if we are to classify something officially as a, a gang member and make that a legal statement and then attach provisions and, uh, you know, extra jail time or extra punishment or anything else, uh, to make it distinct, that is something that definitely needs to be vetted uh, at every level of uh, of, of the judicial nomina- you know, the process that legislation has to go through. Uh, I don't think that that would become codified legal code in Massachusetts without an awful lot of, of uh, debate and opinions. Yeah, so by way of uh, – a little bit by way of background in terms of what's happening in California where they do have this law, um, some of the ways you identify a gang member's colors – um, it might be certain kinds of tattoos, might be certain kinds of logans, uh, logos or, or statements that are tattooed upon your body. But what's the murky area, David, is that s- there are some kids that have just been seen with known gang members. I, I, don't, I guess they have gotten them on you know, gang activity. And, and they're like, wait a minute, I'm not, you know, I'm walking down the street, this guy says something to me, and I happen to like the color red. Hey, why, why, how, why am I a gang member? So it's, it's, and because you can be in jail longer if identified as such, this is a big issue. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. there's gray areas all over the yeah. place. I'm sure you get a police officer in here, too, and he, yes, he, I'm he sure. or she would speak to the yeah. difficulty of, uh, yeah. of, um, of uh, defining someone. Uh, but, you know, one thing that was at the end of that piece was the uh, talk of its impact on bail. Um, uh, and there's been uh, some talk on Beacon Hill of reforming our cash bail system, which mm-hmm. is seen as kind of disadvantaging low-income people. It's uh, harder for them to uh, get out while they're awaiting trial and they end up kind of essentially yeah. serving long sentences, you know, prior to trial because they don't have the money to to get out. Um, and, and this sort of gang tag seems to have some impact on whether uh, someone's considered dangerous and therefore uh, granted bail or allowed to, you know, out, to be out conditionally awaiting trial. Um, so uh, these things all kind of bounce off each other, echo off each other. Um, and um, there is some talk in Beacon Hill of reforming that bail system. I think it's going to take a while. Uh, it's a very complicated uh, issue. Uh, but uh, at least in that tangential way, uh, mm-hmm. this issue is being uh, discussed on Beacon Hill. Well, let me just add to that and say that um, 
Laura Randolph from NPR did a fantastic piece about this whole bail system. And you'd just be shocked about how many people are caught up in it who, you know, somebody stole a popsicle and is, ends up being in jail for seven years, you know, because they couldn't pay the bail. I mean, it's really, yeah. it's it's bad. So that's, if if nothing else comes out of this, is that they look at, take a look at this bail system, that's probably a good thing. Uh, Mike, you seemed like you wanted to add something to that. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was a new report Mass Inc. put out about you know, looking at the state's uh, bail system and, and you know, the cash issue that David was, was talking yeah. to. Um, the ben Foreman put that out earlier this week. So he, he's right. There is some momentum uh, on this issue. Uh, it seems like we, we talk about criminal justice reform very often. And it seems like leaders on Beacon Hill always promise they're going to revisit criminal justice reform. Um, Deval Patrick made it a priority but didn't get to it before he left office. The Speaker and the Senate President now uh, have been mentioning it more and more often. Uh, I, I, David may disagree. I do not think that it's certainly not going to be this session they'll tackle any kind of criminal justice reform. Certainly not. I mean, I, I, don't, I think bail in particular is a complicated issue that will take some time. We might see some smaller ball uh, changes. Yep. And the Senate has already passed a, uh, a state law, a, a repeal of a state law that requires a driver's license suspension mm-hmm. in the event of a drug crime unrelated to driving. You know, uh, currently, if you are caught for possession or distribution of drugs, even if there's no car involved, you have your driver's license suspended for up to five years as the max. And the Senate has moved to uh, has voted unanimously to repeal that law. Um, uh, Speaker DeLeo has been a little cagey on where he is on this, and the uh, the governor has suggested he's open to it, but hasn't fully embraced it yet. So I think we might see some incremental things uh, in the short term. In the long term, um, uh, the Senate President, the Speaker, the Governor, the Judiciary have all signed on to a. Uh, a, a large kind of process where they bring in outside mm-hmm. help, yeah. um, an outside organization to kind of vet the state's entire criminal justice system. And, and that has in other states and dozens of other states has led to kind of a consensus around reform and and passage of legislation. Now, you know, how far mm-hmm. that will go, we'll see. I mean, because that'll depend that's on, a big step. on the players yeah. and, and how far mm-hmm. they're willing to go. Yeah. Um, but uh, I think in the long term, we'll in the short term, we'll see some small ball stuff. In the long term, there's a there's maybe an opportunity for change that we haven't seen in a while. I would just add that on the national front, there are some strange bedfellows together yeah. fighting the Koch brothers with some very liberal people on for the same criminal justice reform legislation in Congress. So this is a it's a time is ripe to make some of these changes. So we'll see what happens. Okay, let's close out with the. Um, district um, race with between Charles Yancey, long-term uh, city councilor, 16 years. This would be his 17th if he wins again. And the, the newcomer... Term. 17th term. 17th term, yeah, sorry. Yeah. 33 uh, th- years. 33 years, yes. Um, the newcomer, Andrea Joy Campbell, who has uh, beat him in uh, the preliminary election and is giving him a tough fight. Yeah. Yeah. Andrea is, uh, she's, I don't think anyone expected her to do as well as she has done so far. So she, um, in, in the preliminary race, uh, she placed first over Charles Yancey, which is the first time this has ever happened. This is the first time Yancey has ever been beaten in a preliminary, preliminary election. Um, she beat him like 58 to like <clears throat> 30-something, which is a quite remarkable margin. Uh, It was low turnout, yes. Um, It's obviously an off year. Very few people realize that in in the city uh, realize, or really in the district, that there is an election, but there is. Um, And Campbell just came out of nowhere, and I well, mean, she's been working. Well, right, yeah. right. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, she's she's a political newcomer yeah. in the sense that this is the first time that she's run for office, but she's been meeting with people since almost 
the last year. Mm -hmm. um, I, I found her on OCPF back in November, and I'd reached out to her back when I was uh, Office of Campaign and Political Thank Finance. You. It's, it's Sorry, <laughs> yeah. it's it's where you, uh, when you start raising money yeah, for your okay. campaign, you have to file with the state. Okay. Um, so back when I was working for the Dorchester Reporter, like saw her filing and saw that she was going to run for office. And so I reached out and, you know, she she has, you know, had these conversations with people and really just, you know, she's she's done the legwork and she's done the door-to-door retail politics that is so important and is so vital and she's raising a ton of money mm -hmm. so you know it 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 has paid off um obviously you know the general election is a whole other ball game um it, it'll be interesting to see if she can actually maintain that lead um but it's looking like you know she's she's doing well he's well. strong in you know Dorchester proper or the core the you know the, of of Dorchester and Mattapan and she has been building out in some of the added um, mm -hmm. pieces that the pieces that were added to the district uh, when there was redistricting exactly. and she has been making and you know nobody fewer people know him in those areas so yeah. she's been making hay with that uh, Yancey is the ultimate political survivor I mean, oh, you don't yeah. stay in <laughs> office for 33 years without some mm -hmm. some skills there I, I certainly would not count him out yet uh, it's true that he's never been beaten in a primary before he's also never been outspent 7 to 1 in a primary mm -hmm. before mm -hmm. uh, Campbell has uh, such an enormous amount of funding uh, much of which comes from outside of the state and, and her, her organization the campaign that she is running uh, like Lauren said she started very early and uh, organizing your campaign and organizing the funding for that campaign very much go hand in hand. She has a lot of experienced uh, she has a lot of experienced campaign staffers, both from inside and outside of the district, who are working very very well to execute uh, mm -hmm. in this district. Um, Yancey has his base. Uh, we got to remember that that primary election day was almost 100 degrees, very very humid. Um, well, I think we have to remember it's a low turnout. A very, so yeah, who has yeah, the who exactly. has the power to get people to vote? So there is a yeah. yeah there's mm -hmm. another X factor yeah. of turnout being higher in the general, mm -hmm. and Yancey running a little scared, and his people knowing. You know, he's, he's, he has a base that may not have taken her seriously, but they certainly are taking her seriously now. If go. that means that everyone brings one or two more bodies to the polls, Yancey could be in office for the, in the next thirty years. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we'll see. All right, well, leave it there, David. Um, We'll get your take on this after the election. <laughs> so thank you, Mike, David, and Lauren for joining me today. Um, thank Mike, you for us. <laughs> yeah, well, it's always a pleasure. Mike Dehan is WGBH News's State House reporter. Uh, David Schaffenberg is a Globe politics reporter, and Lauren Dzinski is the Politico's Massachusetts reporter and author of the Massachusetts Politico Playbook. Thank you all. Coming up, 50 years ago, Congress passed the 1965 Immigration Act to ease, not block the way for immigrants. Many of them came to Boston, the latest wave hailing not from Europe, but from Central America and the Caribbean. The author of a new book marks the 50th anniversary of the Immigration Act with a look at how these new Bostonians have helped shape today's Boston. That's next. You're listening to Under the Radar. And this is Under the Radar. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyep. That's Creole for something extra. 
Americans look across the water at the migrants on the move now and are reminded of a time when a steady stream of immigrants found home and hearth on these shores. But here, the 1965 Immigration Act helped ease, not block, these would-be citizens. In Boston, the first big waves of Italians and Irish have been followed by immigrants from Central and Latin America, Africa and the Caribbean. How and why they came and where they settled is the subject of the latest book by author Marilyn S. Johnson. Johnson is a professor of history at Boston College who specializes in U.S. urban and migration history. And Professor Johnson joins me in studio. Welcome. Thank you, Kelly. Glad to be here. I'm also joined by Alejandra St. Guillaume, who is the director of Boston's Office of New Bostonians. Hello, Alejandra. Hi, Kelly. <laughs> so let me start right out with you, Professor Johnson, because... Um, just to put it in context, it feels now that our conversation about migrants, immigration is so negative. And there was some of that back in the 20s uh, here in this country. But 1965, the Immigration Act sort of opened up some things, reduced some penalties, made it made it uh, easier for uh, immigrants to settle in Boston, uh, specifically we're talking about. So much so that in uh, past 1960s, and, and these are the years that you focus on in your book, the number of foreign-born residents has nearly doubled. That's right. It's gone up significantly um, both in Boston and in the country generally, and that has to do with the changes, partially with changes in the 1965 law and the uh, elimination of the old discriminatory national and uh, racial quotas that have been put in place back in uh, during the World War One and 1920s period and uh, instead opening up um, at least some immigration paths from virtually every country in the world. And it's made a tremendous difference in the population of um, greater Boston and the, the country in general. We have um, now where I think I have two charts in my book in the beginning where it showed 19, the Boston population in 1910 versus uh, 2010. And in 1910, we had four groups, all of whom were from Europe or Canada, that made up uh, three quarters, more than three quarters of uh, immigrants, foreign born in Boston. And now there are more than two dozen groups that make up that, that same percentage. And most of them are from outside of Europe. Now, your overall take of your book is that the, these new Bostonians have really helped enrich the community. Uh, d- Give us an overall sense of how how that happened or why you say that. Yeah, and I would say enrich in many different regards, both culturally, economically, in terms of replenishing the population. Um, there are an awful lot of ways that um, immigrants have transformed the, the, the city and the metro area. And if you... Um, uh, if we, we go back to the 1960s and 70s when the legislation was uh, passed and was first having an impact, Boston was really at its low point in many ways. Uh, population had been dropping, labor force had been dropping, manufacturing industries were closing down, and um, the city was um, really uh, waiting for the big turnaround, but it that didn't really come about until noticeably until the 1980s, and that's exactly the time when immigration was being noticed as well, all the new immigrant groups who were coming in. And I don't think that um, people appreciate uh, enough uh, how important immigrants were to the rebuilding of Boston, the so-called Boston Renaissance, the new Boston. Um, They've played such an important part in that. Uh, If we didn't have immigrants, we would have still have a population that native-born population that's declining. We'd have a labor force that was declining or flat. Um, and immigrants have, have played a critical role in making a lot of these uh, 
these changes happen, along with some other big structural forces as well. And that's my guest, uh, Marilyn Johnson. She's a professor of history at Boston College, and her new book is The New Bostonians. Now, one of the points that uh, Professor Johnson makes very strongly, Alejandra, is that when the state, the government, got involved in easing the way for immigrants uh, to get resettled, Mm -hmm. then you know, things happened in a positive way for those folks coming here. And your office is the office of New Bostonians. Yes. <laughs> so so how have you seen that play out yeah. now that we, we she's told us about how the population has grown and the, and yeah. the enhancement? No, definitely. <laughs> and, you know, our office uh, was created in the late 90s, and it was very much in response to this uh, migration that the professor talks about in terms of just the diversity of people who are coming, diversity of languages, diversity of cultures, and how do we, how do we make sure that everyone who's coming to Boston and children of immigrants as well, um, how they are both integrating as well as having access to, to services and really being at the, the forefront of everything from uh, jobs and uh, economic opportunities to uh, being activists in their neighborhoods to being part of civic associations. So all of this is really important for our office because we see the full integration of, of immigrants and refugees as uh, the professor says key to not just our you know richness and our you know the value of culture but also the economic value that they bring and you know and I can't you know agree more about how immigrants have really replenished a population that was was fading and as we know the history of of our city in terms of busing and white flight um so and immigrants replenishing that that population has been has had a huge huge impact uh we look at immigrants across the state and their their proportion of uh, owned business, the bus- number of businesses they own are much higher than their population. Um, in the main streets areas, there's, I think, I think there's something like 25% of the businesses are, are, are immigrant owned. And so, um, so it's really, it's really has been an incredible economic impact opportunity. Um, but there remains many, many challenges in our office works with what are the challenges, um, culture, language is a huge one, uh, in particular, as you have, um, growing, you know, migrations from different, different parts of the world. But, um, but you're right, the state, the state actual, you know, the, the state as in the federal government has a huge role to play, um, as they don't talk about, uh, increasing the number of refugees from Syria. Uh, we, 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 as a country, we take the largest number of, uh, refugees, Mm -hmm. um, but it's still 0.03% of our population. It's a very small percentage of our population. And so, um, but having you know the mayor and the governor saying yes we are here and we are we um, are ready to take these on to take in new refugees um, it, it plays an important role in, in in what you were talking about is the dialogue and what is you know been the negative uh, dialogue around immigration and really changes it say no this these people are part uh, you know have built our countries and you know. And Syrians have been here for generations. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Um, <laughs> Very important community. And, and we should mention that uh, Secretary uh, of State John Kerry has said um, we're going to increase the number that the, yep. the, the whole country takes up to 85,000. Yep. Um, we don't know how many will end up in Massachusetts, but, you know, some will. Yeah. And, you know, which brings me back um, to you, uh, Professor Johnson, because you very carefully detail how 
new Bostonians become new Bostonians, you know, when you make the transition from being here and being new and being an immigrant. But, you know, there's a lot of tension, you know, housing discrimination. There was some, you know, public, uh, just personal intercultural discrimination. There was uh, church influence in supporting some of these groups, the Mm -hmm. Catholic Church particularly. I was found that interesting. Um, you sheltered a lot of uh, immigrants that came to Boston and gave them a foothold. Uh, new immigrate the immigrants' rights community, Centro Presente, yep. these kinds mm-hmm. of things in town, uh, helped in Boston. And so now, as we are looking at uh, what's going on in Europe, and know that some of these Syrian refugees are going to come, what what do you see as their path now, um, Professor Johnson? Based on what you know of what happened with the people who are now new new Bostonians. Well, I certainly think, and I, I assume you probably think this as well. Um, uh, that we are going to get uh, Syrian uh, resettlement here. Uh, and that's because, um, as Alexandra pointed out, we have a large Syrian and, and Lebanese and population going way back to the late 19th, early 20th centuries. One of the uh, first uh, mosques in the country was uh, founded in uh, Quincy, actually, by Syrians and Lebanese who worked in the shipyards uh, back in World War One and World War Two. Um, so I think that uh, certainly religious organizations like that will play a big role. Um, I think uh, there are a number of refugee organizations that provide uh, services for refugees uh, will be actively involved, and groups like the mayor's office and the state um, uh, governor's council for, for refugees will also play an important role. So um, I think we'll see maybe not as much as, as Detroit and a few mm-hmm. other places, but right. I think we will see quite a bit of resettlement activity here. In fact, let me give, this is a a quote from Cheryl Hamilton, the Director of Partner Engagement at the International Institute of New England, and they're part of refugee settlement, and she says, the global refugee crisis has been growing for years, and if there ever was a time to support your local resettlement agency, this is it. And resettlement agencies in New England are simultaneously, listen to this, preparing for Syrian arrivals while also assisting Congolese, Burmese, Iraqi, Mm -hmm. and other refugee families arriving at local airport today. So Alejandra, your office is going to be busy. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) definitely. I mean, uh, most of the, all of the refugee resettlement really happens actually through the Office of Refugees and and, uh, Immigrants at the state level, and they uh, grant out to resettlement agencies. So we're much less involved in actual direct services as refugees come. And also, uh, given the high cost of of housing in Boston, we have a a lower percentage as compared to Western Mass or even Chelsea and Lynn. um, And Lawrence and, and Lowell, they, they have much larger, you know, much larger populations of refugees that are going there just, you know, in terms of where they can get housed. But in terms of, um, but you're absolutely right, because, you know, it, this affects new newcomers as well as people who have been here for a while, but issues of integration, issues of, um, you know, being able to uh, get accustomed to our system, our school system. Uh, refugees have... Uh, significant trauma uh you know the the term refugee means that you cannot go home yeah that's right that's right right. right. i mean seriously yeah yeah. yeah. and you've taken refuge in another place while you wait and sometimes um that sometimes that could be years it could be decades uh in in conditions in actual camps so uh you know the people the refugees come here and they they do get you know uh assistance but it is time limited and so um the longer effects of that uh are are something that really municipal municipal services deal with the schools the housing um mm-hmm. 
So, yeah, so all of that. So that's going to be, you know, very, very important to us. Uh, That's my guest, Alejandra St. Guillaume. She's the director of Boston's Office of New Bostonians. Uh, Back to you, Professor Johnson, who's professor of history at Boston College and author of the book, New Bostonians. Yeah, as I read your book, I was taken with the cyclical nature of the public negative attitude of newcomers. Mm -hmm. So, you know... Awful stuff happened to the Irish and Italians when they came. Then that transferred to the next group and the next group. And we're in a period now where the the dialogue is so nasty national about immigration in general, uh, not even specific to Boston. And as we talk about these refugees coming to Boston and resettling and other people who are just trying to immigrate here, what what, what do you see happening? Is is there anything in what, in your research that shows it'll settle down, or are we in a period of real negativity? Because after the 1965 Immigration Act, which was welcoming, then we had 1986, mm-hmm. which was not so welcoming, mm-hmm. that act. So, you That's know. right. And yeah. the 1980s were a terrible time in Boston, um, in many ways a continuation of some of the tensions of the busing crisis, but focused more on immigrant and refugee communities, and particularly those from Southeast Asia. And I have a chapter in the book that talks about all the violence that um, uh, was directed toward uh, refugees and immigrants from from Asia during those years, and it was really brutal. Um, and so I think we see these these episodes uh, of of violence that flare up again. Um, sometimes it's during periods of um, economic uh, distress, which doesn't really account for the present moment. Um, I think it may be simply the the convergence of uh, the the refugee crisis in Europe right now with uh, an election coming up mm-hmm. and the opportunity mm-hmm. to um, spend some rhetoric at immigrants' expense. Um, but really, I think that a lot of it doesn't, very little of it makes much sense when you think about the role that immigrants have played and this vilification by Donald Trump and others of immigrants as, you know, taking jobs and being criminals and all that has no basis, in fact, in uh, in, in greater Boston or in the country at large. Um, so I think uh, hopefully it will die down um, and that the, the election rhetoric is driving a lot of it right now. So, Alejandro, is it is it that people are right now in just opposed to immigration, <laughs> period? I'm talking about public now, not the, not the politicians right. that uh, Professor uh, Johnson has referred to. Or is it any set of new immigrants have to go through this? Is it, is it, does it matter the kind of immigrants or is just, this is just what's going to happen? Well, this is, I mean, it's an, it's an interesting, it's an interesting and much longer conversation, I think also on, on race and, and, uh, and, you know, adaptability and, and cultural difference. But I, um, but I do, but as you, as you mentioned, the Irish also went through, um, you know, terrible discrimination. Uh, I think that, you know, this, you know, I think you're right. I think red rhetoric is getting geared up because there's an election cycle coming up and there is, you know, going to be a lot more attention and the candidates are just trying to be at this point, the most controversial, so they can get the most most attention. And I think, you know, the negative there has been negative impact. We've seen the um, the uh, homeless man from Mexico who was right. uh, beat mm-hmm. up. But what you also saw was an immediate, re- re- you know, re- rebuke. Rebuke from the mayor and the commissioner and really just saying this is not it's not acceptable in Boston. And, and although, um, you know, perhaps the the positive um, work and, and image that that the mayor and commissioner and, and um, governor are, are doing right now, um, 
gets overshadowed by the what well, what's super ne- yes. what's super negative. Um, but I, I think on a local level, it is really important for uh, our residents to know that we that we are a a welcoming city and that we uh, we don't tolerate that that type of behavior and also our you know our mayor is the son of immigrants so yes. um i think that also has has been very uh has really um, impacted how he sees our office and how he uh you know, views his administration and the work of the administration. And the vibe that he wants Boston to have. Yeah. He actually said that at the at the conference, of the U.S. Conference of Mayors, right. made that right. statement. And Boston's um, had a reputation for a long time as an immigrant-friendly city right. and one that has been welcoming to refugees. Um, and also the communities around Boston, like Lynn, have been accepting refugees since World War II and even before we mm-hmm. even had the, the use the legal term refugee. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Professor Johnson, if you're writing the next chapter of the News Bostonians, <laughs> um, who would you be? focusing on and what what do you think you would see? Well, that's a hard business for historians. We don't like to look forward. But, I mean, there is a lot of discussion right now that um, Asian immigrants are going to become uh, the new largest uh, group uh, and uh, actually exceeding the numbers of um, Latino migrants. And I think that's possible, certainly, in Boston. Right now, Latinos um, are the the most uh, numerous group, but um, Asians are not that far behind, and I, uh, it is possible that that could change. Um, so it will be interesting to, to see as as things unfold. Yeah. Are you seeing that already uh, in your office? Yeah, no, I mean, to... definitely if you look at the, you know, the three top are um, Haitian, Dominican, um, sorry, yes, Haitian, Dominican, um, and Vietnam. In Vietnamese. Chinese, Chinese, Chinese. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. that's what it is. So Chinese mm-hmm. and and the Chinese and Dominican um, go back and forth from each one being the top <laughs> each okay. year, um, and and so yeah, so you de- you definitely see that you also a large percentage of the Latino population is Puerto Rican who are not immigrants. So um, you know I think nationwide you'll see it happening much more rapidly in places that already have much larger Asian populations like uh, like California, but uh, but you will I I would predict that you would see that um in in our city as well and it's it's very interesting the diversity of our of our immigrants i can't overemphasize enough is is very distinct to to us i think we have one of mm-hmm. the most diverse immigrant populations even the top two the chinese and the dominican even the, being the top two they don't even make 10 percent of, right. of the immigrants who um the foreign born that we have in boston so i think that diversity will continue mm-hmm. and while mexicans are a growing percentage of the the immigrant population in 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 the last 10 20 years um, it's nothing like in this California or the Southwest where there's such a dominant uh, force. So, um, yeah, it'll be. And, and certainly the family unification provision mm. of the 1965 Act has been very important for Asian immigrants who have brought family members. And that growth then becomes ex- exponential as family members bring family members and that growth continues. Well, thank you both very much for uh, talking to me about this uh, very uh, important and, and interesting fact, because I know people don't know how many foreign-born residents we have and the impact of uh, immigration in a good way here in Boston. So thank you both. Thank, thank you. you. <laughs> Marilyn Johnson is a professor of history at Boston College, and Alejandra St. Guillaume is the director of Boston's Office of New Bostonians. Professor Johnson's new book is The New Bostonians. 
That's it for this edition of Under the Radar. Join us next week at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed and including Lanyap, our Something Extra segment. In the meantime, you can find our show and links to stories we discussed today on the web at wgbhnews.org slash UTR. I'm Callie Crossley. Our engineer is John Parker. Catherine Whalen is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.